Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Leaders. I am Miriam McLemore, an enterprise strategist with AWS. Recently, we've experienced a lot of disruption in how we work, and companies like Slack have made communication with our teams easier and more seamless. I am thrilled today to have an entrepreneur, tech leader, and now co-founder and CEO of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, here with us today. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself further? Sure. Uh, I'm Stuart Butterfield, as you said, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Slack. Background is tough. Uh, born and raised uh, in Canada and grew up the first five years in a log cabin. I was fortunate to discover the internet in 1992, um, kind of changed my life. And since then, have been working on the use of computing technology to facilitate human interaction. So with the same crew that created Slack, um, close to 20 years ago now, we created Flickr, the photo sharing site, which was massively multiplayer photo sharing. Slack is kind of massively multiplayer workplace software. Um, and I think there's endless fascination and endless work to be done in how we leverage networks to improve the lives of people. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for spending time with us today. Can you tell us even just a little bit more about Slack and, and what you guys have been doing? It's a fascinating story. Sure. Um, so we actually started the company to do something completely different, which was a massively multiplayer web-based game. And that didn't work. We spent several years on it, though. And uh, during that period, we were using what might be familiar to, to some people in the audience, uh, an older protocol called Internet Relay Chat. So it actually predates the web by a couple of years. And the difference between IRC and other messaging services is that it has what they call channels. And channels are kind of the basis for Slack as well. The channels are where the conversations happen. You can still private message an individual or, or a group, but... Um, the intention is for conversations to happen in channels so that they're more widely accessible to other people. But because IRC is so old, we added feature after feature after feature uh, while we were working on the game. So not consciously. And I think that made a difference because in the normal process of any creation, but certainly of, of software development, there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of speculation. This was addressing the problems that were so irritating that we couldn't stand them anymore, or the opportunities that were so obvious that we couldn't help but pursue them. And over the course of many years, we had developed a system that when we decided to shut down the game, we all agreed we would never work without something like this again, and maybe other people would like it. So that was the uh, the end of 2012, early 2013. Um, a year later, we had launched. So that was early 2014. And now, six and a half years later, here we are. Well, what what a great story, and I I love the perspective of your you're building something for utility first, um, not knowing actually that you're building a product. Um, so our session today is really about navigating this kind of sudden at home revolution that's happened to all of us, and Slack has been absolutely key to many people in enabling them to work from home and stay connected to, to their teams and to their organizations. Can you share a little bit about you know, what that's been like for you guys as you pivoted with the rest of the world to work at home? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, and maybe kind of continuing from the threads in the, in the previous answer, I should say Slack's based around channels, and um, what ends up happening over time is an organization. And it, this could be a company, it could be nonprofit, it could be government, it could be academic, but generally the organization creates channels for everything that's important to the organization. So in a company, that might be you know, a channel for every customer, a channel for every team, every office location, every business unit, every functional area, every project or initiative. And once you have that, everyone knows where to go to ask their question, everyone knows where to go to give their update, everyone knows where to go to get caught up in something. And that in itself can be pretty transformational. But it became especially important, I think, for a lot of organizations when they were disrupted, you know, kind of like this violent disruption, um, or it's very, very sudden anyway, uh, of everyone working in a distributed way. So Slack was, as a company, probably three, four, five percent remote workers before the pandemic. And I'm certainly in that group of people who, if you asked in February, could you get the whole company to work remotely inside of a week and still maintain your productivity? I would have said, no, definitely not. Um, Sometimes when um, you have to do it, things that seemed like they would be impossible become possible. And that was the experience that we had and many others. But instantaneously, we saw everything from um, the FBI working with uh, a bunch of private uh, security and, and, and internet companies to help crack down on new forms of cybercrime that were emerging specific to the pandemic. You know That was happening in Slack. Um, a bunch of charitable efforts, so one of note called Frontline Foods, which was an organization that was um, developed to, to buy from local restaurants to help support them during the pandemic and deliver to frontline workers, so in the, in the hospitals. And in the early days, you remember when some of the hospitals, at least in New York and, and a couple other cities, were overflowing, it was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of danger. They got up to thousands of volunteers, hundreds of thousands of meals served. They were operating in 50 cities and the whole uh, backbone of that was Slack. We also, you have, I don't know, pretty close to 100% market share in um, most research uh, groups attached to universities. So including pathology and epidemiology and um, biology and you know, all kinds of uh, related disciplines. So there was a lot of activity happening there. Of course, usage also skyrocketed. So we had customers uh, with you know, north of 100,000 employees, now hundreds of thousands, um, many organizations that have thousands or tens of thousands, and all of them ramped up their usage, both in terms of the number of users and in the intensity of usage. And I think people don't know this, but Slack is um, very heavily used, billions of messages a week. It's actually more uh, messaging happening on Slack than there is on Twitter, for example. And um, that really ramped up and we, we were suddenly breaking records for the number of simultaneous users like you know a couple times a day for for a week. Uh, and because you know as, as, a, as a leader and, and as the a person inside of the company where this was happening, all of that ended up being pretty easy. Uh, because there was so much adrenaline, because there was, you know, it was so clear that the opportunity was there and we could be helpful to people and everyone wanted to be helpful in that time. Um, so I don't know if we could have kept that pace up forever, but the first month or so was, um, kind of heroic efforts, but done with a, a lot of, uh, spirit. So there's a lot of camaraderie. No one was complaining. Everyone was happy. And you think about in normal times, 
you get on stage at an all hands or you work on the objectives for the year or the vision or the mission and the, all this effort goes into trying to align the organization. And in some senses, it's kind of a gift when that just comes from the, from the outside and the world tells you exactly what it wants. And the volume on that is so loud that no one's wasting time on, on anything else. And everyone's excited and, and passionate to get the work done. Yeah, I, I love that, Stuart. Um, as you know, AWS is now using Slack organization-wide. So I have my, my whole list of, of channels and, and direct contacts, and we're really enjoying. Really, um, I think it's, it's amazing the, the focus on your employees. And it was interesting, you know, in getting ready for, for this interview today, I read a an interview you did with Harvard Business Review and to your comments about um, focus and, and your team's ability to, you know, really understand what was important. But you articulated it so well in this article. You said your, your team now had a clear sense of purpose. You had a widely shared objectives. You had appreciation for the importance of the work that you were doing and you were fostering genuine collaboration. I loved loved your summary in that that article, and I think it's a great lesson for many of our customers who are trying to create the speed that that you are enabling for them and the connectiveness that your teams enabling for them. Yeah. Oh, well, well, thank you first of all. And um, so I'm 47, and I've been the CEO of something for the last. Uh, 19 years or something like that, but I'm still figuring it all out. Um, and I know the audience here is, is, um, all or, or mostly all executives. And if your normal experience is anything like mine, you know that you should be spending time creating all the things that you just listed, you know, from that, from that article, the shared sense of purpose and the clarity of objectives and the importance of the work. Um, but there's just this constant stream of stuff coming up, you know, um, projects to review or problems to solve. And it can be difficult to kind of uh, maintain, or at least for me, to maintain the focus on those things that are important at the company level. And, um, you know, awareness can kind of drift away from those from whatever the latest problem to solve is. Uh, so it was a really good reminder of the fundamental importance of instilling that the sense of purpose, but also just like the um, turning the volume up loud enough on uh, on the objectives and what we're trying to accomplish. Because in the absence of that, what ends up happening, as I think probably everyone in the audience will know, is people just kind of diffuse and start start working on different stuff. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Um, you know, AWS and Slack recently announced that we're starting to work more closely together to empower teams. Can you tell us about the the workstream collaboration that that we're doing together? Sure, and it's actually you know it's kind of the latest and greatest, more advanced version of something that we've seen um, uh, going back to quite a quite a while, like even before Slack. What, what used to be called chat ops. And mm -hmm. for those of you who are less familiar with it, I mean, the basic idea is really simple. Imagine that there's, um, you know, a new big launch and you're provisioning all these servers. Or on the other hand, there's an incident, there's an outage, there's a network failure and people are scrambling to, um, to, uh, fix it. In that environment, there's a lot of software engineers or ops people or whoever 
and what used to happen is they'll type the command into a terminal and they'll see the response and then they'll go and tell everyone what happened and then they'll go back to the computer. Um, once you have a channel, and people did this in the IRC days, you can issue the command in the channel and have the, the servers respond in the channel and now everyone knows what you're doing and what happened as a result of that because in those um, situations where it's literally second by second and every moment counts and you have to stay tightly coordinated or you're not going to be able to, to solve the problem, um, this became critically important. So fast forward a decade, that still happens. But there's also a lot of more routine work that's not crisis mode, that's not second by second, but that benefits from the same degree of transparency and the um, you get the same benefit from doing this thing in a public forum. You know, obviously, you have a lot of control over that. Um, but doing it there means you don't have to tell anyone that you did it. And everyone has this awareness of, of what everyone else is doing, which is also incredibly important for, for coordination. Um, and then there's a lot of just day to day notifications that a, you know, a build is done and you can deploy or, you know, there was an error in the process or whatever. All of, all of these different signals and events that are happening in all of these different systems can be routed to exactly where they're needed um, in a way that is a massive reduction of complexity for people, a massive reduction in in effort. And so we're really excited about you know not just the stuff that we have uh, today and and what we're announcing, but like the kind of the roadmap for that looking forward and taking it from um, audiences that are primarily technical to everyone else in the company. Yeah, you know, Stuart, I love um, a, a lot of your examples and focus is around creating efficiency for the actual worker, right? And and lowering um, kind of the overhead and enabling uh, your teams to get work done. And I imagine that's absolutely core to your culture. Um, and pushing decision-making down certainly is core at Amazon. Can you talk about um, how you you focus that culture? Because that is a challenge, again, many enterprises have, is really truly empowering their teams with the right tools and the ability to make decisions quickly. Mm -hmm. it's, it's honestly, I think, the biggest challenge uh, for us as a company, for, for me as a leader, for the other members of the executive team, and um, part of that is, is organizational structure and part of it's, it's culture. But if something's really important, the question I usually ask myself is, who is the senior most person whose full-time job it is to make sure that this thing is successful? Because often what ends up happening is people want, and there's more prestige or there's more compensation or there's, it's a more exciting role to have this big portfolio, you know, responsible for all of these different things. Not everything is equally important. Sometimes one of those things is so much more important than the rest that it should be the full-time job of the most capable leader you have at the company. You know, if, if it's something that is that strategically important and uh, there's a lot of natural incentives that are set up that kind of fight against that, that mode, um, you know, principally to do with uh, people's career ambitions and how they're recognized and rewarded. So, I look really closely at that and how we can we can solve some of those problems with the organizational structure. Obviously, I've never worked at Amazon or AWS, but you know, from the outside, there's a pretty 
stellar reputation in the creation of teams that can have a lot of autonomy and, and operate independently. And that's much tougher in a functionally organized um, company. So the you know, part of it is that the culture part is, um, I was going to say it's easier, and now I'm second-guessing myself. Um, but it is really um, creating an environment where it's okay to get things wrong. And I think there's a lot of confusion about this. And people say, like, Silicon Valley, celebrate failure, fail fast, and all that stuff. That might be also true. Um, but we have to recognize that we don't know the answer to most of the questions. And if we just do it and it doesn't work... We learned something. Now, of course, not all decisions are equal and you, you know, you can't just fumble your way around. But I think a lot of times we, we use the decision making process that should be reserved for, uh, for the one way doors, you know, for the, for the decisions that are irreversible and apply them, um, to things that are a little bit more optional. And the result is that things take 10 times longer than they should. Um, and then, you, then it doesn't matter if the team's autonomous or not. It, you need, something pounding on them to, to get it to go faster and to just make that a little bit more concrete. Um, at the beginning of the development process, you'll often have um, people produce these designs and then they you know take a screenshot of the design, they put it in a presentation and they have a meeting and they put the presentation up and everyone looks at it and they say like, you know, looks good to me or maybe they have some comments and then you just do round after round after that. Um, it's a little bit like looking at a photograph of a recipe and then trying to decide if a dish is going to taste good at the end. We're just, we're not capable of doing that. So it should be the minimum number of minutes until you hit a disagreement about something. Um, and then you make it and then you see. And, you know, kind of continuing the cooking analogy, if you think about when you're cooking, you're constantly adjusting the heat or adding water or adding more salt or spice or whatever and tasting things as you go. But there's such a, um, a fear of getting something wrong that people don't want to do that. And it means that they'll drive themselves towards, um, safer bets, you know, where the, the probability of success is higher, but the payoff is, is proportionately lower or, or even worse than that. Um, and the cultural change that I think I've put the most energy into driving over the last year or so has been really trying to signal that it's okay to get those things wrong. So I don't mean it's okay to get everything wrong all the time, but if you act quickly and decisively and um, you learn from the result, then that's a fantastic outcome. Yeah, I love that. And, and basically a lot of what you said was you have to be intentional about culture, right? It's not just going to happen. You've got to give people permission to experiment. And I love your cooking analogy. And that is, I find it very powerful. Brings me to a question about, you know, what one of the things Slack does is breed transparency, right? And we are certainly in a world where, you know, inclusion, diversity, transparency, open conversation is crucial to get us to where we all want to go. Um, is that something that, that you focus on in, in your team? Over the years, put a lot of effort into building um, both a diverse and, and an inclusive working environment. And along the way, there's been a lot of um, uh, experimentation. Uh, given the you know relatively poor degree of, of success collectively as an industry we've had in this area, I think it, it 
it kind of requires more of an experimental attitude. And I think at Slack, we've been relatively successful. So I think, you know, this almost hackneyed to say long way to go and, and all of that. But um, compared to, to many of our peers, it is, a, it is a more diverse company, at least, and hopefully also a more inclusive company. But among the different experiments, um, we, we're going pretty far out there. We have an a organization called Slack for Good. We participated in this thing called uh, Pledge 1%, which is 1% of employee time or equity in the company. And um, we, we did the equity thing and, and the employee time. And the mission of the organization is to increase the representation of people who have traditionally been underrepresented in technology. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically saying make the industry more diverse. Um, and one of the really interesting experiences and, and kind of success stories uh, recently has been the program called Next Chapter. So Next Chapter is kind of a, a training apprenticeship program for formerly incarcerated people to become actual software engineers. So not, um, you know, not, not a, a second-class technical assistant or something like that, um, but actual full-fledged engineers. And you know, that's not the trajectory that most people coming out of, of prison are, are going to have. So we're you know, very conscious that this is not like a broad-based solution. But I think it's important to create those opportunities because the impact is not just on the individuals, you know, and you know, the financial outcome for them or the, um, the feeling of, of pride or accomplishment or something like that. But it has a real impact on the, on the family and um, the network. And it kind of expands the network of of the company to include a bunch of people who wouldn't otherwise be included. And fundamentally, I think there's a belief um, that talent is equally distributed and opportunity is not. And so if we are able to increase the possibilities for um, a, a bigger variety of people to have the opportunity, I think we'll end up with a lot more talent. And so the first cohort of um, people going through the Next Chapter program was just Slack. There was just three employees. Um, and they all made it through the program. They all are now uh, Slack employees. So, Stuart, thank you uh, so much for, for spending time with us today and, and for sharing um, just some incredible insights and the, the story and the journey um, that you and your team at Slack have been on. All right. Thank you so much, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be here.